Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about our political institutions, how they're broken, why they're failing us, and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. I'm Julia Azari. I am a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hello, guys. It's been a while since we've all been together here in the pod. But, you know, I'm really excited to be here today. And I want to start off by just thanking all of our listeners. This is episode, I went back, I counted them. It took me a while because I'm not good at counting always. But 141 episodes. This is our 141st episode. Or maybe we've recorded 141 episodes. Either way, that's a lot of episodes. And do either one of you remember our first episode, the very first one that we recorded back in June of 2019? I do. I remember that happened. <laughs> there oh. you go. Do you remember what we talked about? All of the brilliant things that I said. We it was. The, I was not told there would be math on this exam. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> the, the math. There's no math. I did the math for you, and so we are either at 141, 142, 130, somewhere around that number is this episode, and that's a lot. But we talked about should the electoral college be abolished. We had a cold open, Julia. I think you voted by absentee ballot. I think I signed <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it still exists, so... <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, and we're still going to be talking about it in the upcoming year. Look, over the past years, I should say, we've asked lots of questions. We haven't really given you all a lot of answers, just more questions. But you know what? That's the point. This is politics in question. It's not politics and answers. That's just not the name of the podcast. We don't have any answers here. Hopefully, we can help you come up with your own answers. But questions are great because they lead to more questions. And our aim in this, our aim throughout all of this has been to foster understanding to help us, and hopefully by extension all of you, to think better, more clearly, and more independently about our politics. You know, why it's such a hot mess, and why it's so dysfunctional, and then how we can actually go about trying to make it better. And today, I think it's good to start with our last episode of 2023 here. I want to, um, to go back and, and talk about what happened this year. Talk about the hot mess of politics. And this isn't going to be, you know, necessarily a a personal retrospective, although if any of you want to kind of chime in, you can. I did get my Coast Guard captain's license this year, so you can call me captain. Thus far, <laughs> no one calls me captain. So, I, you know, if you would like to, that would make me feel very good about myself. But I want to talk about politics and what happened in 2023. And as we start off on this, I want to break it down into three general categories, or really two categories. One is the presidency, the presidential election in 2024 that is upon us, right? We got Iowa, the first caucus in the, in the Republican primary is, what, a little less than a month or a little more than a month, give or take. It's got to be one or the other uh, away. We got New Hampshire. We got Nevada. And then the Virgin Islands, which I just want to say, and then I'm going to be quiet here. The Virgin Islands primary is something that is woefully undercovered. And I think the politics in question team needs to be on the ground in February to cover this all-important first island primary, right? It's an island primary in the Republican presidential primary. I think we should do that. But I want to talk about the presidential election and what this past year has taught us about the different candidates, the President Biden, and also the parties themselves. And then I want to end, if we can, on Congress and what's happened there or what hasn't happened there. And if I'm leaving anything out in, this, in the great spirit of this podcast, by all means, just throw it in there. But I would just say, when you do, come in hot, and aim for the heart, because that makes it more interesting to listen to, I think. 
Where are you? You just you, you've moved your rooms. Now you've got a different view. This is gorgeous. I'm in the metaverse. Well, you got some plants and vines and stuff coming through your windows. Should probably do something <laughs> about that. Raccoons or something. Uh, all right. So what happened? What's different? What did we learn? I feel like I, I don't know what I learned. This so should we start with Julia? She's usually a bit more put together than you and me. <laughs> I know. Okay, yeah, I, I know you guys learned things this year. I'm not sure what's happening here. All right, so I got I got two things I want to talk about. Um, the first one is, I mean, I guess they're Trump and Biden. I guess that's what I want to talk about. What we learned this year is that we're most likely going to have a rematch in 2024 of Trump and Biden. And we probably could have guessed that a year ago, but I think it seemed less inevitable. In May, I wrote a piece at Politico about the politics of inevitability and how we don't have to have them, essentially, and that we can learn things and, and politics can change and that nobody listened to me. And instead, we have fallen right back into this sort of, you know, this sort of thing where events happen and it just it feels like American politics is sort of static and, and ossified and baked in in a way that I think it felt at the end of 2022, like maybe we were moving away from that. So that's one kind of theme that I want let's, to think about. Let's talk and about I, that theme. Go ahead, Lee. I think there, there's a lot there. That this politics of inevitability is something that seems to just sort of dominate so many conversations. Well, nothing's ever going to change. We're stuck in this moment. And it does have this self-reinforcing quality to it. And I feel like this is a lot of the conversation around Biden and the Democratic Party Everybody I talk to says, why are Democrats doing this? Biden is a weak candidate. He's too old. And everybody looks around and says, well, who, who can do something about this? Everybody feels weirdly powerless. Everybody's making the same choices over and over again. And they should be reading you, Julia, because we don't have to make the same choices over and over again. Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. So I wrote this piece at Politico about Trump and kind of, I actually called it the politics of revelation, but it was sort of about like how politics could change and be more fluid and be more the way you're describing it. You know, people could have more agency in the process. And that was specifically in response to the Trump indictments, which has taken up a fair amount of my kind of brain space this year. Um, I, I want to circle back to Biden if we can. So with regard to Trump, I was kind of trying to make the case that perhaps, you know, the response to Trump's indictments could be surprising. And so far, it's, it hasn't been surprising. It's been sort of all part of a a conversation about what happened in January of 2021, what happened after the 2020 election, that to me feels like it's becoming increasingly sort of proceduralized out of existence. So I've been following this through the indictments, where currently there's a sort of question about can Trump be prosecuted as a former president? And so an attempt to do a kind of procedural work around the bigger questions. And then there's this 14th Amendment stuff. I mean, I think that was one of the interesting twists and turns of uh, 2023 was the introduction of the 14th Amendment idea, this idea that uh, people who participated in the insurrection in 2021 could be barred from the ballot could be disqualified for office and thus from the ballot. And so far, three states have decided this in Trump's case and have decided to sort of punt on that question on essentially procedural grounds. So we've sort of gotten back into these old patterns of, of like partisanship through procedure. 
I think have made American politics in 2023 less fluid and less surprising than 2022. So I've just restated what I already said, um, but most importantly, reminded everybody to read my stuff in Politico, and I'll get to promoting my Substack when we circle back to Biden. Yeah. Speaking of Substacks, I wrote in my Substack, under current events, a piece about this concept of metastability, which James and I did discuss, you know, which is this idea that although things may be stable on the surface and seem like they are not changing, it's this state that is you know, really held together in a very precarious way. And you know, the analogy that, that I used there was like highway traffic that's moving way too fast and there's too many cars on the road, but the highway traffic keeps moving along. But then if one person swerves, then there's just going to be this tremendous ricochet effect and the thing's going to turn into a traffic jam and could be disastrous. And, you know, it does feel like there are all these pieces of our politics that if something deviates from this sort of politics of inevitability, then things could go pretty wildly, right? I mean, like, what happens if a few states decide to take Trump off the ballot, right? Like, that's unprecedented. And everybody's afraid of doing these things that are sort of out of the mainstream, because they're afraid that we'll, we'll wind up in some weird and strange and chaotic state. Uh, so we're just going to do the thing that we keep doing. I feel this is, you know, Democrats and Biden. Well, Biden won last time. So we're just going to do the same thing. There are these sort of imagined patterns that we have to keep doing over and over again. At the same time, you know, we suddenly see RFK Jr. entering the presidential race and suddenly he's like polling surprisingly well and probably not going to get on the ballot in a ton of states. We see the no labels candidacy like there, there's just these tiny things that could flip our politics in very dramatic ways because everything is so tightly coupled. Well, thinking about and looking back at the year and trying to make sense of kind of what is likely to come in the presidential election with Biden and Trump, for instance. And again, anything can happen. Anything can change. But I want to look at some alternative explanations for why it's inevitable in by inevitable, I mean why it's going to happen. I mean, nothing is actually inevitable at this point that Julia has actually made. I mean, we we get to decide as we as we go. And the point you're making, Lee, like little things can change everything. And everything is like one way until it's not, and then it's a different way. But if we think about why Biden, let's just start, like why Biden? And let's circle back to Biden, and we can come back to Trump, and then we can kind of unpack the two parties and maybe some prospects for reform there. But, you know, I look at the political landscape right now, and I see a very divided Democratic Party. I see a, a Democratic Party divided on policies like immigration. I see a Democratic Party divided on foreign policy, on fiscal policy. I see a very divided Democratic Party. And so in that instance, it makes a lot of sense that it's going to be very hard for that party to coalesce behind an alternative to Biden. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you have divided parties in the past, you get kind of challenges and you get more robust challenges. I mean, we can think about um, Ted Kennedy in, in 1980 with Jimmy Carter's candidacy as an incumbent presidency. I mean, it's always going to be an uphill climb. It's a huge challenge to to disrupt and to knock an incumbent off of their party's ballot, right, or their place on the ticket. But we saw that, and we've seen it in the past. We've seen like Pat Buchanan, for instance, in the 90s. We've seen more robust intra-party challenges, not necessarily third-party challenges, when the parties have been very divided. Today, we see divided parties 
it's unmistakable. It's, you can't avoid it that they're divided. But yet we don't see this kind of robust challenge. You still see this. Everybody's falling in line behind these lackluster candidates or candidates that they otherwise aren't a big fan of. And that seems really interesting to me. I don't know why. I mean, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, it is very unusual, but I think it's a function of the way in which our parties are both internally divided and politics is so razor thin in terms of the majorities. I mean, we're talking with uh, Jonathan Rodin on uh, the last episode that we recorded, and he has this uh, working paper with Gary Cox about demonization in which he notes that the Parties are very heterogeneous, but the thing that keeps the parties together is, well, the other party disagrees with you, right? So ironically, that suggests that the internal dissensus within the parties is actually driving a lot of the animosity between the parties, because the only way to keep the parties together internally is to ramp up the idea that if the other party wins, it's the end of things. Which... That really seems to happen. I don't know. Julia, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, what am I? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I don't know if I would make light of some of the things that are being promised in this campaign or the way that the executive branch can be weaponized. So I want to go back to the Democratic Party point, because I think that's right. And this is the, this was a substack I wanted to promote. Essentially, you know, I think there's a couple things going on with the Biden presidency. And this is how I closed out my my presidency class, was talking about the Biden coalition in 2020, which is sort of a mix of progressives who have to be mollified kind of constantly, but also who are really anti-Trump, anti-Trump Republicans, and then, you know, kind of more centrist Democrats who are more naturally inclined toward Biden. But it was very much, I think, a kind of cobbled together coalition of very different groups. And so it's not that surprising that especially given the bizarre nature of the 2020 primary, it kind of got cut off in the pandemic. It's not that surprising that Biden is having trouble keeping this coalition together. And the kinds of things that have happened over the last three years have sort of sort of poked at that coalition in different ways. So Biden, much like Obama, in order to legislate, has had to sort of attack to the center on legislation. So that's, I mean, it's sort of inevitable to go with our inevitability theme. But it's, you know, it's one more way that progressives are going to be irritated with the Biden administration. And then you have this sort of emergent divide in the Democratic Party on foreign policy and on the Israel-Palestine question. And you have a president who's really having trouble with that left flank. And so the big sort of open question there is where does that segment of the party go? Do they stay home? This is, I think, the implied story of all these Biden polls is the young voters are going to stay home. Progressives are going to stay home. And that's really, I think, I think it's really damaging to talk about that in inevitability terms a year out, among other things. But so that's like one set of questions. And there's this question of keeping together the part of the Biden coalition that's not really in the Democratic Party, the sort of Lincoln Project people. And I think that there, any number of things, but especially the Afghanistan withdrawal have kind of destroyed Biden's claim to to competence um, or really damaged it. I don't think that that's I don't think it's completely beyond the realm of possibility for the Biden administration to claim that they've done some things competently. But the Afghanistan was a big kind of very public kind of failure. So I think this coalition has been sort of cracking apart in different ways. And that kind of explains the Biden presidency and the Democratic crack ups are part of that, but not all of that. But the other thing 
I tried to emphasize is I think Biden became the candidate to paper over these bigger fissures around what the Democratic Party is. I think there's a really big age gap in the Democratic Party. And there's this sort of gap around, what did I call it? Sort of how how you approach politics and change in general. So I think that that's true. And I think there's just, it's not obvious what other candidate would paper over some of these really crucial divides in the Democratic Party. And so I think we're, I think we're looking at a year of kind of talking about why is Biden the nominee. And then as one of you had already said, it's kind of like, who's doing anything about that? Who is, who has, you know, formulated an alternative. Biden was old in 2019. Did people really think he was going to age in reverse over the last four years? Benjamin Button. Um, Right. I'm really over the Biden age thing. That's my takeaway from 2023 is like, think of something else to say besides Biden is old. That is my takeaway from this year. Well, he was, he was old then, but he positioned himself as a transitional figure. Right. I mean, I I think his 2020 campaign was, look, you know, this is an extraordinary moment, a trusted hand, and I can win. And he did win. And a lot of people put their ambitions aside and said, we're going to support Biden. And there was an expectation that he was going to step aside. And I think now it's really strange that every single conversation I have about politics is basically, why is Biden hanging around? Why isn't he just retiring graciously? There's so much talent in the Democratic Party. So why doesn't he just, given where he is in the polls and given that he's just not inspiring any energy, and the Biden's campaign's rationale keeps moving. First they say, well, you know, it's too early to pay attention to the polls. Now they say, well, it's inevitable to your point, Julia, right? We can't, the primary deadlines have all passed. I mean, the the convention is not until August 19th in Chicago, by the way, which, uh, Gives me some echoes of 68 there. So I think there's going to be a tremendous roiling within the Democratic Party until August, in which there's going to be a lot of a lot of efforts to say, can we find somebody who we can unite around? And the problem is any talented Democrat doesn't want to be the person who steps up and says, I'm the heir apparent, because they know they'll have their chance in 28. But you might not have an election in 28. Well, that's grim. I mean, I think we will, but, you know, who knows? So if you want to go to the Virgin Islands to cover the primary, 2024 is the year. Yeah, maybe maybe don't come back. <laughs> this is the year. Yeah, I'm I'm in for covering the Virgin Islands primary. But, yeah, I mean, I guess what I don't get about that, though, is that to me, the sort of writing on the wall about why Biden was being nominated was there in 2020. And... I don't know what people thought was going to be different in 2024, except maybe that they didn't anticipate that Trump would run again. I mean, but let's just look. Biden is the nominee because no one's challenging him. And we think about these politics. We think about the parties. And, you know, in the past. Don't forget about Dean Phillips, James. Well, okay, Yeah. okay, But but like, no, no, like and that. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe I shouldn't say it in that way. But. The people who are complaining about Biden within the Democratic Party, it strikes me, are the reason why they have Biden. Maybe they can't win. Maybe they can. But you have to to try, right? And and the fact that they're not trying, that is, to me, a hell of a lot more interesting than the fact that we have Biden. And Well, they're, they're waiting, right? I mean, everybody's ambitious and nobody wants to step out of line. But the fundamental problems with aren't Biden. The fundamental problem is the party doesn't agree. 
And that's the thing. And in the past, you have, you know, we can think about FDR, we can think about Reagan, we can think about Jackson, we can think about, uh, you know, Lincoln, we can think about these big transformative presidencies at certain points in American history where the coalitions change, because the people who support the different parties change. The fact of the matter is, the Republican Party today does not agree amongst itself. They may not like the Democrats, but hell, if you get down to the specifics, like, well, this is what they're going to do. Like, what? They don't even agree on what's bad. And then the same thing with Democrats. It's like, well, if, if the Republicans win, the Republic's over. Well, why? Ask them why. Well, is it because of immigration? No, it turns out a lot of Democrats agree with a lot of Republicans on immigration and vice versa. Is it on foreign policy? Is it on fiscal policy? Go on down the line. It turns out we got more pro-choice Republicans in the Republican Party that we thought we had. And the same with pro-life Democrats in the Democratic Party. The fact is that we are no longer doing politics and then we somehow expect politics to change. I don't think it's, how, do, how should I say this? It's not about patching together a coalition that doesn't work anymore. Right. I mean, the, the, the it co doesn't coalitions work. have a limited time span and the internal fractures grow. And, you know, I think if you look at the history of realignments or presidential time or any of these circular theories, you know, the, the Reagan coalition has cracked up. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still living in this sort of shadow of the politics of Reagan. I mean, may, maybe you could say Trump was the realigning president. and But our political coalitions are really taped together with wire and string and just opposed to each other because it seems like if the other side wins, it's the end of the world. And that, that's the but, moment. But that, why? On policy, but why? Because it is. Thing, like, because it but is. Why? Why? Because but Democrats why? Because Democrats are all Marxists and socialists, James. So you, are Republicans. Well, then they're I guess, all Marxists I, now. I, I guess the way we uh, think about politics—it's well, all about outcomes. RFK Jr. for president. I think this is this is not the issue with the Democrats. I mean, I do think they disagree about policy. I think that's a, that's an important part of the story, of course. But I think the main thing is they're back where they were in 2020 on this "who can win" question, because. Having Trump on the ticket is going to always press that question. I think other, probably other Republican candidates would too. So they're back on this who can win question. Biden did what he needed to do in 2020. Can he do that again in 2024? Nobody knows. But what they're stuck in is the sort of the fruits of two conflicting interpretations of two presidential elections. So on the one hand, 2008 gives people all this inspiration. Who can become president is like a whole new, you know, is a whole new ball game. And so you have all these rising stars you know, the Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, women, people of color, LGBT people in this Obama tradition of the Democratic Party. 2016, the lesson people take from that is that those identities may be a real kind of drag on the ticket and too much identity politics, you're going to lose the white working class. And so you're going to lose the election to Trump. And I think that does speak to the realignment point and the way that Trump kind of repositioned the Republican Party with certain voters. But what hasn't happened is the Democrats haven't reconciled these two sort of competing visions of what the broader electorate is, much less what their party is. And there just is not an obvious candidate that sort of satisfies both needs and that seems like they can win. And so the, I think that's the that's the problem for the Democrats. It's like they're still stuck in this electability thing and they haven't like they've somehow learned less about electability. They've somehow like unlearned electability. But I think we're going to move on. I think I, I think Lee is really chomping at the bit here to talk about Congress, and I know that James has probably just been in Congress, possibly today, talking to people in Congress, and I always think I don't have opinions about Congress, but I usually do. So why don't one of you two take it away? Well, just as a segue, sorry, Lee, to jump in as a segue, I think it's 
a lot of the same dynamics that we see in the presidential kind of aspect of our politics are also manifesting themselves in Congress, right? They just do it in a different way. And I think looking back at this, and I'll be interested to see what Lee thinks here, looking back at 2013, not 2013, 2023, it's, that seems like yesterday, but looking back Wait, at Let's this, do the time warp again. Yeah, it's whatever year we're in, looking back <laughs> at that year, Congress has been woefully kind of, in many respects, underwhelming, not in all. And I think a lot of the explanations for that, at least how I explain it to myself, is the fact that, again, the, the parties don't agree. But it's very curious because in the past, when you have a lot of disagreement within the parties, you have, just like with presidential kind of politics, is much more contested. Congress is much more contested. It's not as cohesive. It's not as centralized. It's not as uh, staid. And it's very interactive. It's just like the 60s. And Lee mentioned 1968 in the presidential convention, in uh, the Democratic convention in Chicago. Well, that was a part of a decade that was very turbulent. And it was turbulent in, in broader presidential politics. It was also turbulent in congressional politics. They went hand in hand. So I think the two are very kind of linked and related. I don't know. What do you think, Lee? So it's the 1960s all over again. Uh, I mean, I mean, it is. There is a way in which, except without all the landmark legislation. Yes, but 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 all of the marijuana. So so it's cool, man. It's cool. Uh, but maybe there will be landmark legislation. I mean, that the, the Inflation Reduction Act was certainly landmark legislation. I think that that will stand as a very important, significant piece of legislation. Hold on. I want to challenge you on that for a second, Lee. Civil Rights Act of 1964. Walk into any room in America. Chances are, even if it's a bunch of students in high school, they're going to know that bill. The the Inflation Reduction Act? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, it was a major investment. The Voting Rights Act? I mean, sure. Those were important bills. Sure. Those were important bills. But, all right. I mean, there hasn't been much... It's been, it's been kind of a dry spell lately, so this maybe will stand in for this this period. I mean, it, it is a it is a major piece uh, of work there, but I mean, I think to to been a year in which I mean, we had a few episodes about this. People can go back and listen to about like that. People think that Congress has to run with a very powerful speaker, and so there's this whole drama over the speakership. That really comes down to the fact that members of Congress have no imagination of alternative ways to organize a legislature other than an extremely powerful speaker. And nobody wants to make any real decisions other than putting all the responsibility on one person and then harassing that person until they do what you think they should do. And then so it is this moment in which everybody sort of feels powerless. And I think this theme of in, of inevitability and powerlessness does really resonate. And the other thing that we have is all these, con, you know, not another round of congressional retirements and another round of people who are institutionally minded saying, oh, this institution is so dysfunctional. And you know, I think there should be some turnover in Congress. I think it's healthy. But the question is, who's being drawn to working in a place in which people don't take legislating and governing as seriously as as they used to and i I think that's a uh, another issue and you have the speaker race in the house the year starts off with this historic balloting for the speaker the republicans can't get their act together i think that's a loaded way of phrasing it but they can't agree on who the speaker should be because they have different views about how the institution should operate because that's very closely linked to policy and again they are divided on policy you have a couple of things happen this year where basically all of the major pieces of legislation are 
overwhelmingly bipartisan, which is a curious thing if you if you think about it, given our the stories we tell ourselves about our politics. I mean, but, but it requires. I mean, overwhelmingly bipartisan. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, a if few you look Republicans. at Republicans, I mean, a few, but more than none. Sure. And also, the Republicans happen to be in control of the House. And so the fact that, you know, we're passing this legislation and it's like it is it's a contradiction, I think, in how we with how we think oh, of the, the spending, the spending bills that, uh, that are passed with Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. On fiscal policy, if, if you look at the Senate, anytime the Senate does anything that's any anything remotely significant, it's overwhelmingly bipartisan and they do it with unanimous consent to set up all, to waive their rules to get around everything. So we tell ourselves these stories about these cohesive parties who don't agree with one another, who are kind of are in a battle over the fate of America. But yet when they act, they tend to just not use all the tools at their disposal. They tend to do things in agreement. But the House, they couldn't agree on a speaker when they finally, when you have uh, the you know effort to get rid of McCarthy. And it takes a long time because they don't agree on policy. Go over to the Senate, where the Senate is completely just is continuing its demise. It's like, could it get any worse? And it, each year, it's surprising at how far from the world's greatest deliberative body this institution, this once great institution, has has gone. Why, why do we still have a Senate? <laughs> well, there. I mean, it's you know, there's lots of reasons to have one. I'm not sure that this one is necessarily fulfilling a lot of that. But again, why aren't senators who ostensibly are believed deeply and strongly and passionately about things? challenging one another, using the tools, using the rules at their disposal, right, to do so. We see a little bit of that here and there. We see an incredibly weak Mitch McConnell, a Republican leader, who survives uh, what I thought was going to be the end of his leadership this year with a couple of health scares. We talk about people saying, why doesn't Biden get out of the White House because he's old? What about, look at Congress. You know, people tend to like to stick around in these jobs for better or worse. And until their voters decide not to have them, then I guess that's their prerogative. But I keep coming back to this idea, and I'm interested to see what Julia thinks, and then I know we've got to wrap it up here soon, but is that the same things that are driving this dysfunction in the presidential side of our politics are the precise same things that are driving this dysfunction in Congress. Again, they just manifest themselves differently, but they're the, the same thing. And I, and I think that you should be able to kind of link both of those. It's not like they're unique factors. Something over here, that, it's not just that the presidency and Congress are hot messes at the same time by coincidence, right? And I think it all comes back to us, the people, the voters, the, the our representatives, the people who you know sit around and, and act like victims and think that everything is inevitable and woe is us and we can't do anything about it. And there are lots of reasons for that, as you've written, Lee, about our party system and everything else. But I don't know, Julia, I've gone on, I've rambled. What do you think? Um, I haven't quite settled on a thought about Congress and the presidency and kind of how the parties are different, at least that works for both parties. I think that's broadly correct. I mean, I think what we're missing are sort of coordination mechanisms. And I think that one of the things that came out of the second speaker fight, the one later in the year, was this sort of, I mean, it's sort of protracted inability to agree on a speaker. And then Mike Johnson sort of coming in as a sort of similar Trump figure being the coordination point, despite not really being the representative maybe of the median position within the party. And I thought that was, I thought that was interesting, but we need to move into 2024. So what do we, what do we expect to see in, in 2024? And I guess I'll say, I expect to see, I expect to see an election that's, that's pretty nasty and, and high pitched, but you know, ultimately it's not, it's not necessarily clear to me that the polls right now are, are predictive, 
But they, you know, they might be. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what to expect from a Trump-Biden rematch. I, uh, it's good for, good for business. Lots of questions to ask. Now, I expect people to lose their mind. I think the hyperbole is going to be out of control. And this isn't to minimize the substance of the people's concerns. Of course not. On all sides, I think people have every right to believe passionately and deeply about the things that they hold important. But the hyperbole is, is making it harder and harder to think, to think clearly about the dynamics around us, to think clearly about our politics, to ask ourselves these questions and not get wrapped up in the rush to kind of just stop thinking and, and to hand over our kind of our critical analysis to others and who aren't thinking either. And I know that's kind of a, a weird thing to say, but if you look back, I don't think it makes a damn bit of difference who wins Congress in 2024. Why? Because it didn't make a damn bit of difference in 2022 or in 2020 or in 2018 or in 2016. Yeah, it made it in the margins here and there, but overall outcomes continue to basically be the same. And the next election is going to be the, an existential moment. And as the stakes get higher, as our sense of existential dread and foreboding goes off the charts, our willingness to step into the arena, a la what conservatives and liberals and everybody across the spectrum did in the 60s, for instance, our willingness to engage in politics goes down. That, to me, is the most interesting and perplexing contradiction in American politics over the last 10 years, if not longer. And I think the answer to that, and I don't know what it is, but the answer to that, what explains that dynamic is how we begin to rebuild, not a more peaceful politics where everybody agrees because politics is where we negotiate the non-negotiable, but to build a more robust politics where we can disagree, where we can disagree deeply, sometimes ugly, hopefully not a lot of times, and hopefully with respect, but we can disagree, we can fight, and we can have these strong institutions to house that activity and elections to help find the people to go to those institutions to do that for us on our behalf. But until we can get to the bottom of that, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of matchups like Trump and Biden. There may be different names, but it's going to be kind of lackluster. And we're going to see a lot of nothing from Congress and a bunch of mountains out of molehill building. And in the end, I don't think that's good because it's going to make people more and more apathetic. And we're going to get this victim mentality. And I think that's what's ahead of us. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us regardless of what we think on policy, to try to, to shake some sense into all of us and to try to get out of that so that we can have this robust, fabulous politics that we've had for a very long time in this nation. Hell no, that's pretty good ending. What do you think, Lee? Yeah. I, Is that hopeful? I, I want hopeful, hopeful uh, confusion. That if it's a Trump-Biden rematch, it will just be so ugly. And I think just so many people are just feeling so exhausted by it. I think we will have much lower turnout uh, than we did in 2020. I think that the RFK Jr. candidacy will show surprising resonance uh, among a particular uh, group of disaffected voters. And I have to hope that there will be some sort of surprise that will move us into a better and healthier state of our politics but looking at the range of probable outcomes the you know the modal outcome is that it's just a a, a very depressing and exhausting year in politics and that we're still podcasting to help us all through it that is sort of how i feel and i live in a swing state so i think you know things are going to get 
pretty wild here. We're going to host the RNC. I am going to be immersing myself in history because at least I know how some of that turned out and finishing my book. And we'll see, you know, what what 2024 will hold. And if the Republicans impeach Biden, which is such a silly thing, we haven't even talked about it. But yeah, I think that's sort of where we're at. And I agree a lot with I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying, James, about the hyperbole, I think that the hyperbole makes it hard for people to envision solutions. But I also, I don't agree that it doesn't matter who wins. You kind of sound like leftist blue sky right now, James, <laughs> with your stuff about how there haven't been any different outcome. I think the first two years of the the Biden administration had a lot of policy outcomes. And it, may, you know, it wasn't the Civil Rights Act. Okay, people were, you know, pushing for something like that for 80 years. It wasn't the Civil Rights Act, but, you know, I think there were policy changes that were consequential. And I think what's distinct about this era is we've had so often we've had the Senate controlled by one party and the House by another. And it's a different form of divided government. And, you know, under the current conditions and under the sort of lack of of coalition fluidity that Lee has talked about so much in his work, I think that's really the thing we ought to keep our eye on. But I do think it matters who wins. I do think we see different policy outcomes, even if we're not always happy with those outcomes. But I do think that you're right that some of the the hyperbolic nature of politics has really removed people from thinking about the kind of nitty gritty, the dullness and the compromise of solutions. And that's where I would like to see politics change a little bit. Uh, I, I, I'm going to take a long I'm going to take a long, long winter nap and uh, hibernate and hope that in the spring there there will be new energy. Well, we have a lot to talk about in the new year, guys. So get some rest. Lee, we'll wake you up when it's over. We'll wake you up when it's all all said and done. But no, enjoy some rest. Thank you all listeners for listening, uh, for continuing to listen uh, to this podcast. And we we will see you on the other side. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks, kids. All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.